Welcome to London Calling EU, a podcast from the EU delegation here in the UK. Last time we looked at how the EU and the UK are regulating the tech world, but today we'll look at the impact of Brexit on the arts sector. I'm David Sanderson, the arts correspondent of The Times, Britain's oldest national newspaper, founded in the 18th century just three decades after the British Museum, the world's oldest national museum, first opened its doors and at a time when the French Revolution was ripping up Europe's rulebook. We are here today to discuss how the ripping up of the relationship between Britain and the European Union has affected museums, the art market and other cultural worlds with a fantastic panel. Tristram Hunt is a historian and director of the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is, in its own words, the world's leading museum of art, design and performance. Freya Sims is the chief executive of the Association of Art and Antique Dealers, whose 550 members, largely in Britain, are currently navigating the changing European marketplace. Alistair Brown is the policy director of the Museums Association, an august membership organisation with 19th century roots, which now advises and represents around 1,800 museums and 14,000 individual members and Ivona Blaswick, who for two decades ran the Whitechapel Gallery, doubling its floor space, showcasing unheralded artists and turning the gallery into a contemporary art powerhouse. Britain's creative industries prior to Brexit and the COVID-19 pandemic were estimated to be worth around £110 to the British economy. Prior to Brexit, there were more British museums in the list of the top 20 most visited in the world than from any other country. The art market was the second biggest in the world after the United States all of which had given Britain an admittedly unquantifiable amount of soft power on the global stage. So, has Brexit been as bad as some predicted? How are European museums cooperating with those in the UK? Are there any new opportunities now that Britain is out of the European Union? Alistair, if I can start with you. In 2016, the museum world had some fears about Brexit. They had fears about the ability to recruit high-caliber workers and whether valuable objects would be left stranded in ports. Have those fears been borne out? Thanks, David. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think if you look back to the Brexit referendum, which is, what, six years ago this week, the cultural sector was, by and large, extremely pro-Remain, extremely fearful of the impacts of Brexit. Um, I was looking back over some stats uh, recently from the Creative Industries Federation, which looks at the entire cultural and creative sector. They did a poll at the time that showed that 96% of people in the cultural and creative sectors were pro-Remain at the time. So there was certainly you know, huge support for the European project in the cultural and creative sectors and a huge amount of fear about Brexit. Has the sky fallen in with Brexit for the cultural sector? It's hard to tell. Some people have really suffered. There's been a lot of negative impacts and the wider economic impact, which affects public funding in the UK and which affects the arts hugely, does look quite bleak. Some sectors in the cultural and creative sectors have suffered more than others. I think musicians, uh, touring musicians, have found it particularly difficult. In the museum's world, certainly there have been a lot of difficulties in terms of coming to terms with the new regimes that we face in terms of moving objects around Europe, coming out of European funding schemes, the loss of things like the Erasmus scheme, all of which have been really difficult and I think also psychologically really difficult for people to come to terms with and to get a handle on. At the same time, the sky hasn't fallen in. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look at COVID, that was something that had a hugely more immediate impact on the sector. Suddenly we were closed all of our audiences were at home and we're still recovering from that. So it is difficult to pick that apart as well. And then 
the final thing I was going to say is that the political impact of Brexit has been very interesting in the UK. It's been something that has helped to create this idea of levelling up as a key plank of UK government policy. There's this idea that all parts of the country should be as prosperous as London and the South East, and arts and culture is a big part of that vision. And there are some fairly substantial pots of funding, such as the levelling up funds and the shared prosperity funds, which have been made available to lots of organisations around the country. And arts and cultural organisations have actually done really well out of them to date. So the levelling up funds that were available last year, 25% of the total funding went to cultural projects. So there's an interesting series of shifts happening in the cultural sector and Overall, it's still too early to say, I think, exactly what the impact of Brexit is in all of this. So Freya, I'm not sure if the sky has fallen in for your members. There was a report earlier this year that found that Britain had dropped down the league table for the value of the global art and antiquities market with China overtaking it and France rapidly catching up. Dealers have complained about extra costs they now bear when they're importing works of art. What is it like at the coalface for your members? I think it's really difficult. I would say that there are a few ways it's been impacted. So whether it's a small individual trader who used to just go over to uh, the continent and buy uh, for different markets and then drive that van back over and sell to the UK and beyond to uh, US, that market has been, you know, severely impacted because people can't move things themselves without um, costly shipping costs or hiring shippers to do it on your behalf. Uh, There is something coming in later, which is looking at the single trade window, but that won't be for a couple of years, but that will remove quite a lot of the red tape. So that's one thing that we're sort of welcoming in terms of something the government could do to circumvent that where people can self-declare. But in in the sort of you know, short term, it's actually quite challenging. Um, If you have a look at, as you mentioned, the sort of the stats of where we've dropped and France has taken over, it almost correlates perfectly, actually, where you can see where that business has gone. We compete and traditionally have competed with US or namely New York and Hong Kong uh, as the biggest market areas. They have zero rated VAT. The UK doesn't because we were on a level playing field with Europe. It was something that we kind of adopted when we were part of the European Union. It's something that we've continued, even though we're out of Europe now. And that is one upside of Brexit that could possibly be changed and may then level things back up. But I would say that people are quite careful. So on the sort of the big international stage, they're careful about where they're selling their works of art uh, to recoup the most money. And with Europe, as I say, it's the sort of the one man band or the smaller businesses are finding it very difficult to do their normal uh, trading. What I will say is dealers are traders. So together with the trade associations that own sort of modus operandi and the shippers, we're all working out ways to do this better because the second most important market for our members is the EU by um, volume. By value, it probably represents about 15% of their business, but certainly by volume, it's a really important market. So people are working hard to work out how to work with our European neighbours. Which is a good thing. I'm struck by something Bender Grosvenor said uh, two, three months ago, where he was bemoaning the extra charges that he now faced to import art. But he also said that at the time of Brexit, many dealers were a bit 
Brexity, they, they thought that, you know, this would mean, well, as you alluded to, the end of VAT and the end of artists' resale rights. Was that true? And if it was true, have they now changed their mind? It's really interesting. And I don't want to, I mean, you know, I should caveat this by saying I don't want to get too political because, uh, of course, this is a political kind of conversation. But our members, some would be for Brexit. I think the majority were against um, because they could see the extra red tape, the sort of burden of red tape, which is already pretty hard to bear from, you know, including CITES and all the other things. But in terms of artist resale rights, unfortunately, that has sort of been knocked on the head by some of the agreements that we've put in place or the government in terms of Brexit agreement that was done with Europe. So it's, it's difficult. So some of the areas where we'd think that there could be an advantage in Brexit, the government hasn't put those in place, which uh, is challenging, let's say. Right, okay. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Tristram, if I can turn to yourself, I mean, London is undoubtedly one of the world's great cultural capitals. Six of its museums were, prior to the pandemic, in the, the world's top 20 most visited. I mean, do you think the city, and by extension the country, still retains a cultural cachet? Is there a risk that the sort of renowned soft power of Britain is going to disappear? Well, good morning. London does retain a profound cultural Cache, and it's the extraordinary combination of the private galleries, the public galleries, the artists, the space, the time zone, the history of, of, of people and communities coming together. So that will remain. But there is no doubt that Paris is hungry to eat our lunch. <laughs> and uh, when you go to Paris today, the confidence and brio, both in the public galleries and this new generation of kind of super wealthy endorsed private galleries uh, we're seeing often through the great fashion houses alongside the ease with which dealers are now able to move money and objects and artifacts through the single market that is not available to us anymore means that i absolutely sense a much stronger competition from paris compared to london and then similarly you know berlin and athens and lisbon are all, all doing remarkable things but i think that long-running london paris competition i fear Paris might be edging ahead at the moment, which is a source of great concern. I can imagine it is. But of course, you do still have partnerships with museums on the continent. I'm thinking of a certain uh, relationship you have over a thousand year old tapestry. I mean, do you sense that this cooperation with these institutions will continue to the benefit of both sides? Yes, the cooperation will continue. It becomes, in a sense, more important than ever. If I think of our work at the Venice Biennale, where we have a relationship with the festival there through the art and architecture biennales, if I think of our work, as you said, David, with the Bayeux Museum and thinking about the research partnership that we've begun there. If I think of our big Donatello exhibition, uh, which comes to the Victoria and Albert Museum next February, which is a tripartite exhibition between Florence, Berlin and London. And then only recently we announced a, a big new exhibition with Chanel, where we'll be working closely with the Palais Galliera um, in Paris. So all of that work continues and I, and I don't see that falling away in any way at all. Great. Okay. And Ivana, if I can turn to yourself, I mean, for two decades at well, Whitechapel, then you did forge a number of relationships with international institutions. By the end of your tenure, what were the conversations you were having with European 
partners, were they, what were their concerns or, you know, did they see this as an opportunity for themselves and that Britain was shooting itself in the foot? Well, it's had kind of three big impacts. One is uh, because we're a contemporary, primarily a contemporary space, it's really about the movement of people. Uh, so being able to invite European artists to come and, for example, commission new work. So it's not just a weekend, but it's, you know, serious time in, in London. And also the brain drain of our own colleagues, yeah. uh, because we recruit internationally and a number of young colleagues simply couldn't stay. It was too, it was too complicated. They felt alienated. They felt somehow, and this also actually was expressed to me by several patrons who had been long-standing supporters of the Whitechapel Gallery, who just said, "Look, we've we've been, you know, really part of this by pledging our work as philanthropists," and they sort of felt that they'd had a bit of a slap in the face. And for artists themselves, it can be quite a hostile environment to enter the country. Secondly, the movement of works, because we're a museum without a collection. So we're dependent on borrowing works of art from public and private collections across Europe. Yeah. And the movement of those works has become so expensive, so time consuming, that you know, increasingly our ability to bring to London audiences great masterpieces from Europe is really being hampered. And thirdly is, of course, yes, these relationships which enable us to make shows because we share the resources, the curatorial scholarship, you know, with different museums around Europe. And again, everybody's more hesitant because of the costs involved. The will is still there um, because the ideas are still being generated in, you know, amongst UK institutions. There's an amazing curatorial powerhouse in the UK, and people want to reflect that and, and reflect also the the creativity of our artists and to kind of tap into that. But the obstacles make it both expensive and incredibly time-consuming. So it's had also unintended consequences. For example, the selling of catalogues. We have a you know lively and dynamic publishing house, and it's proved virtually impossible to sell online, you know, single copies to our followers across Europe. It's working at a micro and a macro level. And part of it is psychological, I would say, which is, you know, a feeling that Britain has turned its back on Europe and that it's a place which is no longer necessarily welcoming. So we have to work very hard to dispel that and to persuade colleagues that we're going to put in the extra time to make partnerships work because without them individual institutions struggle to meet the costs that are involved in bringing important works of art or significant shows to Britain. Yeah and Alistair on that point or specifically on staffing point there's a quite a high percentage certainly previously of employees in British museums were from the EU and there'd be a certain amount of exchange vice. Are museums now finding it hard to recruit European staff and experts who, especially those that are below the, the £30,000 highly skilled threshold? Yeah, definitely. We hear from our members uh, about huge problems in terms of uh, recruitment across the sector at the moment. And undoubtedly, that is partially because we no longer have freedom of movement with the rest of the European Union. And, and that's everyone who works in museums, right from cleaning and catering staff, um, right up into senior curatorial posts. 
for often very specialized roles and um, where there's a, a fairly kind of small talent pool and a very internationalized one. So turning off freedom of movement has made life a lot more difficult for UK museums right across the recruitment sphere. Picking up on Ivana's comments it is also this issue around roots into the sector and this kind of sense that how are we going to grow this sort of future talented generation who are going to have the same sort of investment in cultural exchange as perhaps current generations. And, um, you know, if we've got rid of things like the Erasmus scheme and we've got rid of freedom of movement, how are we going to create that sort of sense of, of European identity and that sense of kind of a shared European cultural space if we don't have a system that, that makes that easy? So that's certainly something that I'd be really concerned about. If we can turn to new opportunities, Freya, the British government has stressed that trade with non-EU countries should now be easier. Is that true? Are dealers pivoting rewardingly towards markets in Asia, North America and South America? Um, not South America, North America, really. I mean, yes, South America is a busy uh, space, but it's actually because in New York and Hong Kong specifically, which are two big art market centres, when you take a work of it, art in, it's zero rated for VAT. And in the UK, we pay 5.5% and then it goes up to 20% depending on what the object is. But now we're not in Europe. We don't have all the advantages of freedom of movement within the, uh, the single market, as Tristram was talking about. So we're kind of knocked out of that and we're not competing with the other big art centres. So I can't echo Tristram strongly enough that Paris is voraciously eating our lunch, I would say. They're very excited with the private museums and with auction houses, because as you were discussing problems with recruitment, that goes into the auction houses uh, just as much as it does into the museums. So actually, some of those great European staff, it's easier to recruit them in Paris. One thing I would say on a positive note is that this month is very interesting with Art Basel, Braffa that just opened, Tefaf that opens and Masterpiece in London. That is a huge melting pot of international galleries from both sides of the channel as well as further afield. And they have all made the effort to move their works of art come hell or high water to exhibit to those audiences. So it will be very interesting to see what the stats are and what the sales are after that. There'll be a lot of activity over this month. Don't let anyone tell you we don't have what it takes. We have everything we need to succeed. And in 2022, we'll put the best of British creativity and innovation culture and heritage on show in a year-long festival of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That was Theresa May in 2018 as the then Prime Minister announcing what would become known as the Festival of Brexit. Now known as Unbox, this is a £120 million festival that will see 10 projects bringing together scientists, technicians, engineers, artists and mathematicians in a celebration of creativity. Alistair, many of your members involved? Or do they feel that the £120 million would be better spent ensuring the country's existing museums remain financially viable? Uh, the latter, probably. <laughs> Look, I mean, there are certainly um, a few museums around the country who are participating as part of the, the consortia that have to apply for, for the, the what's called the Unboxed Festival. But I think the way that it has been 
marketed um, and portrayed in the media as a sort of festival of Brexit has not exactly whetted the appetite of a huge number of museums to get involved. I think a lot of museums would be very sceptical indeed about being seen to be part of that, especially given what I was saying earlier about the sort of the enthusiasm of many in the cultural sector for Europe and for the European project. So I think that um, it's not been hugely popular. And I think there is, as you say, at the end of your question, that huge demand for cultural funding just to keep many of our museums across the UK open with the lights on and, uh, and, and able to welcome visitors. That There's been huge cuts in funding, it's particularly at the regional and local authority level over the last decade. Um, there's a third less funding going to our local authority museums than there was in 2010. So seeing funding going on this kind of event is stuck in the throat for many. And Tristram, go on, be honest, what were your thoughts when you first heard that the government was going to subsidise a festival of creativity that would rightly or wrongly be seen as a celebration of a new unhindered Britain? Well, the V&A came out of the Great Exhibition of 1851. We played a big part in the Festival of Britain in 1951. So I think it would be a bit churlish of me to say <laughs> <laughs> this is all a waste of money. So I won't do that. So I'm confused whether it's happened or not. It's happening all around us, believe it or not. <laughs> I haven't seen the boxes unboxed, so um, I'm going to wait to see that. I think the important point of government supporting creative endeavour and creatives, and whether it's the Irish with a really interesting project around a universal basic income for artists, uh, whether the state takes a different role in supporting creative endeavour from pageants to unbox, I think that's all good, but let's see the outcome. And it doesn't negate Alistair's broader point about the importance of nuts and bolts local authority funding for museums and elsewhere. But we, we need this mix, you know, because we, you know, the point is not just to have these institutions and buildings for the sake of it it's also about the spark and the creative and the artists who then collide with the collections and create something wonderful and interesting so i feel despite david your understandable deep-seated fleet street cynicism we should hold out a bit further heaven forbid that we get accused of cynicism in the media but anyway just if i can just stick with the finances briefly for a bit you you mentioned local authority funding now the vna along with all the other national museums has been pushed towards a, a model where you, a certain amount of subsidy but increased commerce and increased philanthropy you mentioned paris earlier on um it's trying to steal our eat our lunch are they stealing our philanthropists as well I think you are seeing philanthropists globally attracted to uh, Paris, attracted to the Macron government, attracted to the European single market, particularly with the build-up to the Olympics in Paris, a sense of the dynamism in that city. But we also, in the UK, have these deep-seated global connections, whether it's to South Asia or America or Southeast Asia and the Gulf, who feel at home and warm in London, as well as UK supporters themselves. What's fascinating, and I was in Athens recently, whereby they're thinking of this culture of giving as well, is that in Greece, not only is there no tax break for giving collections to museums, you also have to pay a tax to give the collection to the museums. <laughs> so there's a donation tax on top of the gift of the asset, which I'm very glad we don't uh, have. But I, I think we can always make it more attractive for philanthropists to support cultural institutions. Uh, the VNA, along with many other national museums, we, we now have 50% of our income is self-generated across exhibitions, membership, 
you know, licensing, catering, retail. And I think a mixed economy is okay. I think it's a British way and it keeps us connected and keeps us nimble. But we're always looking for support such as the really good exhibitions tax relief, uh, which allows us to claim back money from the government when we create, you know, world-class exhibitions that travel around the UK and the world. And Ivana, from the museum's point of view, you've obviously taken a step back from Whitechapel no, but what do you think should be done, can be done to restore relationships between institutions in this country and in Europe? I think there's a lot of bureaucracy, which I don't think anyone really knew how to handle it. There was such a paucity of information because everybody was making it up as we went along. And so shippers and customs agents and Everybody was in the dark, you know, and I think to streamline that and actually find ways of facilitating the temporary movement of works, uh, to look at that, to look at all of these huge obstacles is a really necessary first step. And then the way that we recruit people, the kind of special requirements for getting visas, all of that really needs an urgent review because when I met with uh, some government representatives at the time, they were saying, oh, well, why, why don't you just recruit another person and train them up from, you know, wherever, Yorkshire and so on, which is, of course, wonderful. We, we have a lot of people from Yorkshire. But the fact is that the way that colleagues are educated in Europe varies enormously. And each person brings a very particular expertise from, you know, their context. And that's something that we're really missing out on at the moment. So I would like to see ease of movement of artists in particular to get rid of this kind of crazy, insanely complicated paperwork and to, to foreground culture as a priority because we know it generates a huge economy. And the other part of this that we haven't spoken of, of course, is the students that we rely on the pipeline of future artists coming from our art schools. And again, enormously costly now for young people from the EU to come and study. And in that wonderful cosmopolitanism that created such an astonishing art scene in the UK. I mean, we think of Paris in the 1900s, then New York in the 1950s and 60s. Well, I think London took up that mantle in the 1990s and became a kind of the centre of the international art world. And that will fade if we're not able to welcome students to come and study here. So I think all of these areas, it's like the entire ecosystem needs to be foregrounded, streamlined, having some really expert people consider how to make this more fluid and that it's a kind of reciprocal relationship with our European colleagues. And Freya, Ivana mentioned about London's status fading. I, I'm aware, however, in March, and it was either Christie's or Sotheby's, what was, it was a McGree painting, which was then a European record. So if we can look for some positives, London is still a major player in the art market. Do you think that these, these McGrees, the Picassos, Giacometti's and Warhol's will continue to be sold in the capital? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. And yes, we are still absolutely a major player, but there's no doubt that we are slightly lower than China for the first time ever. But there is still a huge amounts of um, very important blue chip works of art being sold at the key auctions in the summer and the winter. But I think we also need to look at the whole ecosystem. And, you know, that's the sort of let's say, the head of the market where the big numbers are are turning. But we need to look at what's happening underneath the middle market and the lower because it is, again, an ecosystem. And you need the entire uh, market to flow through for it to feel robust. So I think we'll still have a lot of really interesting, great works of art selling in the UK. But we need to nurture the dealers from bottom up as well as the auction houses, the regional ones to the big major players to make sure that they can all prosper and sell good works of art. We have unfortunately run out of time, so all that remains is to thank our guests for their time and insights. Do not forget to sign up to London Calling EU and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye and stay tuned for our next episode.